This is the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, episode number 65. I'm your host, Joe Sibelia, and tonight my guest is Andy Kern. Now, Andy is the bassist and founder of the Canadian hard rock band Coney Hatch. They were uh, came out in about the uh, early 80s, I would say, 82, 83, when their first album hit. Um, that album came out, and they were quickly on the road with the likes of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, have also toured with bands like Crocus and Accept, and, uh, you know, made a little name for themselves, but didn't quite, uh, didn't quite break into the big time in the U.S. Now, Andy didn't let that stop him. He recorded a few more albums under different band names, such as Carmel and Leisure World, Soho 69, and also went on to uh, do some band management, working with Anthem Records and managing bands such as Rush. Now, Andy has recently released a live Coney Hatch record recorded during the pandemic and also is working on a project called Envy of None with Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson. Hopefully we'll hear more of that real soon. If you like this show, please go over to Apple iTunes and give us that five-star rating. That always helps. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for at R&R Coffee Show or search for The Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. I hope you enjoy this episode with Andy. Thanks for listening. Hello. Hey, man. It's Joe. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Um, excellent. Thank you. No complaints. I appreciate you uh, being flexible tonight. I'd be glad we connected. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I started this whole, uh, whole uh, reschedule <laughs> thing, so... So thank you. Listen, I, I was talking to Chip, and and um, he had a lot of great things to say about you, and I'm and I'm stoked to be on with you. So I'm happy to make some concessions, and we did each other a solid. So we're all good, brother. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, you know, sometimes life gets in the way of things, right? You got to take care of things. Absolutely, man. Whereabouts are you located, by the way? I'm in uh, South Carolina. Okay. On the All east right, coast, awesome. east coast of the U.S. You're up in Canada, correct? Right. I'm. I I, I live just outside of Toronto, but I'm actually on a small little. Um, I would. I don't know if it. I guess it's like a part vacation, but um, uh, my in-laws lived in um, in Alberta, just south, uh, uh, halfway in between Calgary and Edmonton. So I'm actually out west right now. On vacation. Well, I would say, yeah, it's part vacation and, and, you know, it's kind of nice considering COVID just to get a change of scenery. But uh, my, my wife hasn't seen her mom in about two years because of COVID. So we're, it's sort of like a recognizance mission. We're coming to just make sure everything's good and and thank God it is. So we're, we're all right. Yeah. Good. Speaking of COVID, how is, um, you know, how is it in Canada? Oh my God. Well, I live in the most conservative province in the entire um, country of Canada in Ontario. And not only were we very far behind in rolling out the vaccination, but there was a bunch of stops and starts. So, you know, we got, we, we thought we were in the clear and then a few cities started to spike and they closed it all down. So I'm not even exaggerating when I tell you that last week, was the first time that I was allowed to eat in a restaurant in probably close to two years. Oh, wow. Wow. So, yeah, so yeah. you guys were, so, were, so really we were quite far behind. Yeah, yeah. See, we're, of course, open full full steam ahead here. 
and we have been for a while, but you know, I don't know if uh, how much you see of the U.S. and stuff, but it's starting to spike back up. So it's kind of, I don't know. What are you going to do, right? Right, and and I'm I'm a big um, you know ice hockey fan, and and every Canadian boy, it's almost like in our DNA. And when when I was watching the NHL playoffs and seeing all these packed rinks, and you know the, 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 we weren't even allowed to have uh, five thousand people in in a game in Montreal. So I was kind of like, wow, this is really brave. What's going on in the U.S. here? But um, I got my fingers crossed that it doesn't spike up for you guys again because you you kind of got out of the gates pretty fast, and then I I noticed that too that it started to spike up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's it well, I mean, we'll see, we'll see. But yes, yeah, so yeah. you fingers fingers crossed for you, man. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, so you are a hockey fan. I did know that about you. Um, and I'm a Tampa Bay Lightning fan. Well, I guess congratulations <laughs> are, are in in uh, in store for you, right? Or or, or due? But uh, no, man. They, I felt sorry for them last year when they won the cup and nobody was really there to celebrate with them. Uh-huh. And my God, they were a, they're they're a powerhouse. I'm ironically as a Canadian boy, I'm a Chicago Blackhawks fan, but right. it's um, mostly because I grew up watching the original six and, and I just love the Blackhawks and Tony Esposito and Bobby Hall and Stan Makita. And I just stayed with the team. So there was, um, what was it? Either 15, 13 or 15 that we played Tampa Bay for the finals. And mm-hmm. that was one of the year the Blackhawks won. So I've been kind of spoiled that we had a good run, but you guys winning back to back, that's, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up most of my life down that area. So I was there when, when they, you know, when they first came out, they were in the dome. It was called the Thunderdome at the time. That's actually where the Devil Rays, or not the Devil Rays, the Rays play now, baseball. Okay, yeah. right. And and if I'm not mistaken, Joe, I think um, Tony and Phil Esposito were uh, partly responsible for bringing an NHL team to Tampa, right? I think, I think so. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. I know, uh, I know it was uh, a great year for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So... When you, let me ask you this, you, talking about hockey, when you were a kid, were you into hockey before music or music before hockey? Oh, a hundred percent. I, I had, go, I had um, dreams of becoming an NHL player a lot, a lot like most of my peers and um, growing up in Canada, hockey's part of our DNA and, and, and similar to, I guess you guys maybe in the States with baseball. Right. Every kid, every kid dreams of, of, you know, going to the show. So I played hockey from about the age of five onwards. And then when I got into high school, um, I started to get into rock and roll, but, uh, I quickly noticed that a, a lot of, um, players were starting to get a lot bigger than I was. And I'm, pre- I'm still a pretty skinny guy. Like I'm, you know, 160 pounds wet out of the shower and right. I was getting hammered. Um, so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe rock and roll is a little bit safer, but, um, I still play to this day, uh, prior to COVID I was skating in two to three times a week. Absolutely love it. It's, um, it's part of my mental therapy just to get out on the ice and chase around a stupid puck and just clear your brain and and not worry about anything, but, um, played a lot, played a lot of ice hockey. And one quick, funny story for you. When I started to get into, uh, in the bands in high school, I, I got along pretty well with my senior hockey coach and a few times 
I said to him, listen, I, I can't make today's practice or something or tomorrow's practice. I got a rehearsal and everything. So they started to call me rock star even before I had a band. And they said, <laughs> when I would come in, they would say, oh, the rock stars here and, you know, and, and grab the hockey stick and do some air guitaring with a hockey stick. And in the yearbook, um, there was there was uh, some some wording to the effect that that uh, I traded a girlfriend for a Rickenbacker bass or something. Lots of chirping about me being in the music, but no, yeah. that was sort of the in and around you know eighteen nineteen uh, from Ejo was where it just became all music all the time. But I never stopped playing hockey. Yeah, yeah. Wait, was you into guitar or did you start with bass or what did you start with? What instrument? Well, yeah, and that's that's a pretty cool question because I have to admit I'm, I I always wanted to play guitar and I'm a closet guitarist. So over the over the years, I've kind of taught myself how to play guitar and with enough tracks, I can make I could fool you. I could say I played guitar <laughs> and this you'd be like Andy, you're not bad. But no, I'm, what happened was um, when I was probably 17, I think, and and my sister was dating this guy and um, he he was a really cool guy. He had long hair His haircut was cut. The hair was cut like Rod Stewart with the spikes on the top. And he was constantly, he knew that I loved music and he was constantly bringing me records. And, uh, he turned me on to the James gang and a bunch of different bands. And, um, he, he, for my birthday uh, one year, he said, Hey man, instead of listening to music all the time, uh, why don't you take this up? And he brought in, uh, a bass guitar for me, which I have to this day still. It's a 1967 Hofner Beetle bass, the same kind that Paul McCartney played. Nice. And and he said to me, uh, "I'll make a deal with you. This is your birthday present, and you got to promise never to sell it." So I stayed true to my promise and actually got it fixed up. And it's it's a pretty cool bass. I've used it on some of the recordings and stuff like that. But I kind of figured, okay, well, I got the I, I have a bass guitar, so I, I should probably learn this and put aside my dreams of playing guitar, but if the truth be told, you know, like most of my early um, musical influences were guys like Joe Walsh and Tommy Bolin, um, you know, Rick Derringer, Johnny Winter. I like, I love that crop of guitarists, but then it quickly changed over to to bassist. The minute I got a bass, I was like, okay, I'm switching lanes here. And, um, and that was, that was a game changer for me. Sure. Who were your uh, bass influences? Um, well, growing up in Canada, it was hard not to be influenced by Rush and Getty Lee. Um, that certainly, I, you know, went to a bunch of concerts at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens where the Toronto Maple Leafs play. And um, so Getty was a big influence. But as I said, um, Dale Peters from the, the James Gang, I thought he was a really awesome bass player. And um, there's a couple Canadian bands, um, specifically a band called Streetheart. Um, and for anybody that doesn't know Streetheart, the early, the early sort of beginnings of Streetheart were some of the members that went on to be in Loverboy. And there's okay. a bass player in Streetheart by the name of Spider Sinave, and he is one hell of a bassist. So for Canadian guys, um, for me, Getty Lee and Spider were big influences. But after I took a couple bass lessons, my bass teacher um, encouraged me to start branching out and maybe not just listening to knucklehead, the heavy metal and rock and roll. So, um, by the way, Oh, sorry, I skipped over one. Obviously Phil Linnett from, from Pan Lazy was huge for me. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I sort of gravitated towards bass player singers, but, um, one of my, when my bass teacher encouraged me to step outside the rock world. I started listening to Stanley Clark, 
and and um, Return to Forever and Weather Report and Jack Up His Stories and um, you know finding guys like Jeff Berlin and, and they were obviously like really serious serious bass players and yeah, listening monsters. to a lot of Philadelphia Motown and Sly and the Family Stone and War and and, and I just gravitated towards that music the bass lines were so dominant so um, I think that really helped sort of carve out you know, just being as broad-minded as I could in terms of bass bass players, but not just listening to a steady diet of metal and rock, which yeah. I which I we kind of you know weaned on the first uh, ten years of my life. You know. Yeah, yeah. So then, when you started playing bass, I mean, how long was it until you um, you formed Coney Hatch? So much like um, a lot of musicians who start, you know, you know, you you find a couple peers that are close and, and end up doing playing in like church basements or buddies basements or you know my dad had had this business and he because we drove my mom and my dad out of the house cranking it in the basement we had a little warehouse and so before coney hatch was even formed i had a couple little basement bands and and you know we played literally like church basements and these little i guess you know community center get-togethers but um, it really wasn't until I formed Coney Hatch with the drummer that we st- I started to get really serious about playing. And um, that was also after I had left high school and had a lot of discussions with my parents, like where, you know, what university are you going to? So I, I could, to appease them, I kind of, <laughs> I applied for a couple of universities in, in here in Canada and got accepted, but then you know, let them down hard by telling them I was going on the road and quitting my job. And they were like, Oh my God, are oh, you man. serious? But they were, they were quite supportive. And, um, to, you know, my, I remember my dad actually, uh, loaned Coney Hatch $2,500 to do our first demo that got us our record deal. We all signed a promissory note and thankfully paid him back. But, um, good. yeah, it wasn't until the Coney, the Coney Hatch thing that we got serious, Joe. Yeah. Okay. And then, so when Coney Hatch formed, I mean, how long was it until you got your record deal? I, I think it was maybe we got pretty lucky. Like, the, you know, you think about young bands that sort of hit the club circuit. And, and back then, I'm sure the States was like that, too. But certainly in Canada, you couldn't get a gig in, in a club if you didn't play uh, the majority of your material being covers cover music sure. so we played a lot of rolling, rolling stones and scorpions and acdc and um snuck in a bit of judas priest but we but you know we also had to do uh, songs you know like that were that were current and popular on the charts so we played some tom petty we even played some some we had a very odd eclectic set list we played you know Drugs in My Pockets by the Monks was hot on the radio at that time. We played Eddie and the Hawk Rods. We um, brand new Cadillac by the Clash and everything. So it was a real mishmash. And so we did that for about a year and a half um, and started really trying to insert a, as much of uh, the original material as we could. But we would never announce it because the club owner, they, they would frown on it when you played any original material. So we we wouldn't even announce it. We just would sneak it in. Right. Um, so we did that for about a year and a half, and that was really playing uh, mostly in Ontario, going into Quebec, and eventually going all the way out west to Vancouver and coming back. And it was a hard, hard slug. I mean, we called those the peanut butter days. I, I'm not even lying to you when I tell you we were 
we were probably making about 50 bucks a week and um, sharing, sharing money and spending most of it um, drinking, you know, buying beers and trying to um, get the attention of, of good looking girls that were coming in to see our show. But um, we, we caught a lucky break in Toronto that kind of took us out of the club scene. Um, but we, we were playing for steady for about a year and a half. And I think that actually really helped us. Uh, Joe, because, you know, when you get into rural Canada or uh, rural Quebec, um, it's rough and tumble. You're playing to uh, literally drunken old guys who have just come out of the mines or working in a steel mill. And, and, you know, when you hit the stage with eye makeup on and your hair all spiked up, sometimes that didn't go too well. (laughs) Right. What what year was this? Where, where Where are we at here in the year? Uh, we're probably about 1981 around now. Yeah. Okay. So that was before like, uh, like, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but the LA scene with the glam scene hit. That was before that. Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. And okay. I, you know, I think maybe some er- seeing some early shots of Alice Cooper and the New York dolls and, yeah. um, and, you know, we would see like, you know, if you look at some of the early photos, even, even of Rush, um, you know, Getty and Alex, Getty and Alex wearing like women's uh, tops that were you know tied in the front and everything. So we 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 really sort of gravitated towards we don't want to just go up there in jeans and t-shirts. And like I said, when you're in Northern Ontario in Kirkland Lake, which is a mining town, yeah. um, you really you really had to win over audiences. Like when we hit the stage, it was like, who the hell are these guys? And they got eye makeup on and. Um, and, yeah. and their hair spiked to the max, right? So um, those were like we earned our keep, and I think it really helped us become much better musicians because we we were playing every night, and some nights we would play to literally ten people, and then by the time the weekend rolled around, you you have a full club of anywhere from two hundred and fifty to five hundred people, right? Right, right. So then, so what label did you sign with? So we ended up signing with Anthem Records, which is it, which is the exact same label as uh, Rush, mm-hmm. uh, Max Webster, um, anybody who remembers Bob and Doug, Bob and Doug McKenzie, the Hoser brothers were also on Anthem Records. But like I said, getting that Anthem Records deal. Um, so one one sort of quick thing that I'll run over with you when yeah. we were doing the clubs. Um, it was very tough to get into Toronto or any big city like Montreal and um, Edmonton or Winnipeg. You kind of had to earn your stripes by playing out of town and then the agents would find out that you did good business. So you could, you know, hopefully get a gig in Toronto. So there was a, a legendary rock club that almost every Canadian band went through called the Gasworks. And anybody who remembers Mike Myers and um, Wayne's World they make reference to the gasworks, but it was a real club in Toronto and it was on the young street strip. And when we were playing one of our many week long stints, I, re- I recall seeing this guy sitting at a table by himself and he was writing in this notepad. And I thought, Oh my God, man, this might be our big break. This might be a journalist. This, this, he's coming to do a story about us. So 
in those days we were playing as many as three to four sets. So in between the sets, I went down and introduced myself to this guy and I said, Hey, by any chance, are you from the Toronto sun or, or the, you know, the globe and mail newspaper? Are you writing an article? He said, no, I'm actually writing lyrics. And I said, <laughs> which I thought was kind of strange because we just finished pummeling him with ACDC cover songs and stuff. Right. So, um, I said, well, that's cool. Who, who you write lyrics for? He said, well, I wrote lyrics for Max Webster. Um, and of course, I, I had seen Max Webster open for Rush many times in Toronto, and they were all on Anthem Records. And he said, you know, um, I really think that Kim Mitchell, founder of Max Webster, he's just broken up the band and left, and he's looking to sink his teeth into something. I really think he would dig you guys, so I'm going to bring him down to check you guys out. And he did he did exactly that, and Kim came in and, and really liked the band and took us into the studio. That's the 2,500 buck uh, loan that, that I told you about that yeah. paid for the recording sessions. But um, honestly, Joe, that was the lightning strike moment that a lot of bands or artists, you know, cross their fingers and go, man, I hope one day somebody discovers us. And if it wasn't for Kim Mitchell, I wouldn't be surprised if we would have just been like any other bar band and, and just, you know, eventually fizzled out. So there was a lot of really great bands that in, at that time that didn't even get the chance. But Kim uh, was responsible for for finishing the demo with us, producing it, really helping us with the arrangements and sounds of the songs. And then he took our demo tape to Capital EMI in Toronto, played it for their A and R guy, and he said, "I love this band. I, I want to sign. Uh, I want to sign them." And Kim had a meeting with us and said, "Look, we can get a deal on Capital, but." I think we should go play it for Ray Daniels, who is the manager of Rush, and he's got Anthem Records, and you know you might be able to to kill two birds with one stone, and maybe he might want to manage you. And so he brought it in and played it for Kim, and that's exactly what happened. So we ended up signing with, with Anthem Records and having Ray Daniels, the manager of Rush, uh, basically take care of us. Wait, so was that a key part of signing with Anthem? Was to have him manage you also? I mean, at the time, was which label was like the bigger label was it capital or anthem oh yeah absolutely capital was a yeah. much bigger label um anthem was considered a small independent label in canada with very with only maybe three or four bands but um that did factor into our decision we thought oh my god you know like we we had a manager at the time and and he was he was he was a good guy but he mostly had club acts so we thought okay this is instantly going to hopefully you know jettison us into the next level and it, it did i can tell you that yeah. within probably six months of signing with ray he came in and said i got you guys the opening slot on the judas priest screaming for vengeance tours you're going to be out on the road with them for three months um also got you a couple of gigs opening up for ted nugent and cheap trick and um, you know, on some of the days off, I think I've got you some dates with Peter Frampton and Edgar Winter. And we were just, I mean, we couldn't believe it. These were, these were artists that I had posters of yeah, my wall, you, you had on my been, wall. Right. So it was like a dream come true and kind of a pinch me moment. Like we were on a rocket ride the minute we signed with him. So, so was your first tour with Judas Priest, your first big tour? The, 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 yes, that was the very first big tour, but we kind of did a mini tour. Um, our management, I think, very smartly said, hey, 
you know, you can't just go from playing nightclubs right. into uh, into an 18,000 seat venue. So there's a very, very popular Canadian band called Trooper. They had, you know, a bunch of hits in Canada. And I, they might even have had some hits in the U.S. and Raise a Little Hell and um, was a big hit of theirs. So they did a small, what I would call little sort of mid hockey size, um, anywhere between 2,000 to 5,000 hockey size arenas. And we went out with, with those guys probably for about two or three weeks just to make sure that we were ready to jump on to the next level. And, yeah. and I'm really glad we did that because that was a pretty rude awakening, um, jumping on a big stage in front of Judas Priest fans who really had no interest in any kind of <laughs> opening act. <laughs> right. That so, was a tough grind. Man. So the first time you stepped on that stage on the first show of that tour, I mean, what was going through your head? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you. I've got a. I've got a double answer for you. The the very first thing I want to tell you is, before we stepped on any stage with Judas Priest, uh, Rob Halford on the very first show uh, knocked on our dressing room door and came in and he said, um, "Where's the Coney Hatch lads? I want to meet all you guys." And I, I think for us, one of the main reasons why we actually got that tour, of course, was for that Ray Daniels was our manager, but. Uh, at that time, MTV was playing the crap out of one of our, our songs called Devil's Deck. And we, um, you know, so we had some serious MTV play in the days where they were literally asking record companies, please send us in videos. So with it, they were like a brand new TV channel, you know, yeah, um, with all music. Going. So we, we got lucky and we had we were in heavy rotation. So anyway, uh, Rob Halpert comes in and, and introduces himself and he said, um, I, and, and he's got a, obviously the thick British accent. He said, I want to give you some advice, boys. And um, we said, so we all sat around and he basically told us that the first three songs were not going to be fun for us. We were going to be, um, th their fans don't like opening acts. And he said, if you guys can get through the first three songs, you're going to, you're going to be okay, but just put your heads down, plow, don't let anything throw you off that's happening out there. And so we thought, Oh my God, what are we walking into here? <laughs> so, so anyway, to answer the second part of the questions, when the house lights went out and the 18,000 screaming kids in there and you hear firecrackers going off and, and the adrenaline rush was unbelievable just to like, you know, I think each of us did a little shot of whiskey before we went on just to try yeah. to calm down. But when we got on that stage, there was kids in the front giving us the finger. They were throwing tennis oh, balls no. at us. There was kids throwing M1 firecrackers <laughs> at us. There were signs saying, um, you know, we want Saxon because Saxon had done the first leg of the tour. So um, let's just say, the, the, like, it was, um, you know, the survival of the fittest. And, and he was right. Like, we made it to every single night. We made it right through the end. And, and the kids started to dig us after we weren't intimidated by him. But we just had to win them over. And we quickly learned what a well-oiled machine they were judas priest and the consistency yeah. and we we started changing our wardrobe going okay we're we're not going to dress colorful let's dress in black tonight when in rome do as the romans do we <laughs> right. changed our set list we played a lot of the heavier stuff that we had and um and we really stepped up our game and and i think that that was a really eye-opening experience but the adrenaline rush was fantastic and one of the most memorable gigs was um at the at the san francisco cow palace 
Um, and, and we, not only did we have the most amount of objects thrown at us that night, but I think we also <laughs> got the best response of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so you were out with Judas Priest, uh, pretty much a metal band, and then you were with Iron Maiden on that, right after that? Is that how that went? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happened. So 82 was screaming for vengeance. And at that time, and if you look back at Judas Priest, I think you could arguably say that that might have been one of the biggest, that, that could, the, the, one of the pinnacles of their career where they right. sold out every single, you know, rink, every, every hockey rink, every, every night. A lot of cities were multiple nights. I remember doing two nights in, in, um, in LA with them, um, you know, but uh, so the good thing for us was the momentum kept rolling through and, and through doing those tours, that tour with Judas Priest and a couple of those opening slots that I mentioned to you with Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and Edgar Winter and Peter Frampton, we started to get a pretty good reputation and got a lot of notoriety with Kerrang! magazine in the UK and Sounds magazine. And that's where Steve Harris and Iron Maiden first read about us in, um, uh, again, another pinch me moment was those guys inviting us out on tour with them. Um, and I think a lot of that was based on, on our MTV success and our radio play in America, because the second album, we, we although it wasn't, I, I don't think as heavy as the first record, we still had some really solid uh, radio play in the U.S. So um, we were invited out on the on the Peace of Mind tour, which uh, Fastway were also a part of. So we were a, a three-act nice. bill. And then when it came into Canada, it dropped down to two, and we did all the Canadian shows as just uh, as the as a sole opener on it. But um, the Maiden guys were were much younger than the Priest guys, and we bonded with them and did a lot of partying and extracurricular activities on days off and stuff like that. I brought my tennis racket out on the road and started playing Steve Harris on every single day off I had. And we became fast um, friends. And to this day, he's probably one of my best friends. And I see him every time he's in Canada. And we just actually um, did uh, some dates with British Lion. And he said to, to me, it would be a lot of fun if we put, you know, Coney Hatch and British Lion back together, kind of like the old days. So those were two huge tours back to back, 80, yeah. 82 to 80, 84 for us were, were really great touring years. Yeah. Maiden's coming out with a new album, aren't they? Yes. I, I think I just saw that they released a, a new single and, um, and I had a conversation with Steve Harris about a week and a half ago, um, asking if, uh, Coney Hatch might be available to, to potentially do some dates with British Lion and solo project in, in Europe. So, um, it, it's, it's an amazing friendship that, that we've kept going since 83 and, uh, I don't know if that happens a lot with bands that tour, but we just really clicked with those guys. That's awesome. Well, you know, new album means new tour. So, uh, most of the time anyway, maybe you get that maiden tour. <laughs> I know. Right. I know. So, uh, but, but, um, you know, and then, and like we've, we continued to, to tour at a pretty high level, like even the, the subsequent tours after those two big ones, um, we were out with Crocus and Accept um, on um, two separate tours after that. So um, really kind of played a lot in, with that sort of hair metal, heavy metal um, arena type tours, even though I don't really consider Coney Hatch a metal band. Um, I right. think we were much more hard rock, uh, certainly more hard rock and maybe even a little bit more radio friendly. But um I think uh, we we were a pretty good choice for an opener, but uh, it, some some nights 
I would arguably say on the Accept tour, that was probably the toughest one because um, those Accept fans, uh, they, they really had no interest in anything that wasn't very heavy. So um, there were certain nights that even we didn't get booed off stage, but we certainly didn't get any encores that I remember opening up for Accept. <laughs> yeah, no, it happens. You know, I saw um, I saw Van Halen and uh, Allison Chains was opening for them. And I'll tell you, Alice in Chains did not get a good, uh, the fans did not want them there. So it, it Interesting, happens, right? Yeah, it happens. Happens all the time. Yeah, um, I know. But but the, I, I'm a firm believer that when you get that kind of reception, it, I, I mean, maybe it's the hockey player in me. I just, <laughs> I just go, okay, screw, screw you guys, man. We're, we're, we're coming back even harder. Like if you don't like us, we're going to just going to earn your respect. Right. Um, yeah. so th- nine times out of 10, that's what we did. We changed our set list around or did whatever we had to do to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing I knew that I was interesting, did Aldo Nova covered one of your songs, correct? He did, yeah. He that, um, Aldo I, did a, ver- a version of "Hey Operator" um, off of our first record. Yeah, how'd that come about? Because he did that like what a year or so after that came out. Yeah, so the guy who was one of the A and R, um, one of the A and R guys at Anthem Records, was a very, very good friend of Aldo Nova's, and we were in between the first and the second record. And he thought it might be a good idea for Aldo to produce Coney Hatch. So he, he said, what if, what if I send Aldo over and, and, you know, we'll get in the studio and try to, to see if he might be the, a good producer for the, for the second record. Uh, long story short, we did not end up going with Aldo and we hit it off with him really well. Um, there was quite a few nights he came to see the band where he, uh, uh, ironically, I've got a couple photos of him getting up with us at, at the Gasworks. And I think he was just a genuine fan of Coney Hatch. And um, my understanding is the label told him on one of his records that he could use another maybe radio, more radio friendly track. And so he got in touch with our A&R guy, Val Azoli. And Val actually went on to be the president of of Atlantic Records many years later and said, I really dig this this track. Um, Hey, operator, I'm going to put it on one of my records. So that's that's kind of how it happened. And he's from Montreal. He's a he's a fellow Canadian as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you're a Canadian band, is it uh, is like is one of the goals to break the band in the U.S.? Like, um, you know, is I, that a focus? Yeah, I, I certainly think so, Joe. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah, no I, I listen. It's you can only play so much in Canada, and it's kind of like the the dream to get over to Europe and and play in the U.S. as well, and certainly growing up watching bands like whether it was Rush or Triumph or to a certain extent Loverboy and and even Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush when you know that they've gone down there and they've broken out of either Cleveland or Texas or something like that you're here you're like okay this this would be really cool and it's certainly for any any touring musician it extends the the shelf life of your record because if you just go from coast to coast Canada, then you're like, okay, where do we go after this? And so um, conquering the U S is a big feather in, in any Canadian band's cap. And, and certainly there's this weird thing where Canada kind of eats its own. It's like, okay, yeah, well you guys were big in Canada, but you weren't really big anywhere else. So the minute you can come back and say, you know, we played Madison square gardens or we've toured all over the U S it's kind of like, Oh, wow. 
these guys must be really good if they're if they're if they're doing well outside of Canada. And then there's this weird acceptance, like, okay, yeah, you guys are, we love you. You, you, You're, you're, you're happening outside of our country. It's a bit of a weird eat your own culture sometimes in our, in our country, but um, it definitely helped us. Uh, There was a lot of great press out of us and in also Europe for us. Okay. Okay. Now you guys had, what was it? Three albums before you took a break. Yeah. Call it quits. Okay. Yeah, we had um, three albums on Mercury uh, from '82 to '85. At that point, and then and then what happened? Why did you guys stop? Well, the 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 last record that we did um, for Anthem Records and for Mercury was was aptly titled Friction. Yeah, um, you know the the. the I guess there there was nowhere near the amount of success off that record in terms of radio play. Um, we actually were not getting along. We were spending way too much time on the road with the same four guys. Um, that that was like, if you ever picture maybe a, having a relationship that even though you're friendly with with the, you know a girlfriend, it just you you kind of know it's not happening. The end is near, and yeah. so um, there was a lot of friction internally between the band and, and primarily, you know, full transparency, a lot between myself and the other vocalist, Carl Dixon, and we were not seeing eye to eye. We didn't do a lot of collaborating on that record. Um, the label, this is, a, this is a classic record industry story that you hear time and time again. They're like, well, we think you guys could be a lot more popular if you didn't have two lead singers. So, Andy, you're going to take a back seat, and, and we really think the band will be more popular if you just had one lead vocalist. And, and that was actually um, a huge blow for me because I formed the band. But I, I did, you know, in I guess I did the hockey player mentality, the team spirit. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go along with this for the team. And it didn't. And it didn't bode well for us. Um, uh-huh. Like I said, we weren't getting along. And then after that, for, after the the accept tour, I think it was one of the second last dates. Carl came in and he said, "I, I I'm going to quit the band." And at that time, we nobody tried to stop him. We were like, "Okay, you know what? Forget it. It's like yeah. we're not getting along anyway. So we'll, we'll just let him go." And um, I think that was a bit of a rude awakening because I think we thought we could replace him immediately and, and, and we couldn't. Um, we tried with a couple of different uh, singers. Ironically, we, we ended up having uh, James Labrie from Dream Theater. He was a brand new, like young kid out of Midland, Ontario. And he came and joined the band and he had never, he had only been in, in like one other band. And um, we tried him for a while and the management said, no, this is not happening. Phil Narrow from the band Talis, who played with Billy Sheehan, stepped in for a little while and um and unfortunately you know phil recently passed away um from cancer but he was an amazing singer so we tried unsuccessfully joe to to replace carl and eventually got dropped by polygram and so at that point we just called it a day Uh, coney hatch was done and and um for any young guy or girl out there, you, you always think your band's going to last forever. And I was right. like, Oh my God, what the hell, do, what the hell do I do now? There's no Coney Hatch, right? Right. So, so what was your plan? I mean, were you going to look for another band or I know you went off and did your solo thing, but that was a few years later, right? 
Yeah, so it did take me a while to get on my feet after that point because having been in a band for ages and, um, and you know, we spent a couple of years, I would think maybe by 87, uh, 87 or 88, we finally said, okay, this is not happening. And I, and I said to the other guys in Coney, uh, anybody that wants to come along with me, I'm forming a new band. And, and if you don't, no problem. And, and that was the cool thing about the ending of Coney Hatch, even though there was friction. We, we didn't hate each other. Um, so we were all still relatively friendly with each other and we kept in touch, but, um, so nobody, nobody came along with me and they said, maybe we wish you best of luck. So I was like, okay, I really got to prove myself. So I, I you know, I found a, 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 a bunch of musicians in town in Toronto that, that I really liked. And some of them were friends that, that I thought maybe would might even have been part of Coney Hatch, but this, uh, you know, these were guys that I'd known forever and we put together um, a bunch of material and I sent some demos to the guy that originally signed Coney Hatch and he had started a label called Alert Records. And that was the first guy that I played any music to. And he said, man, I love this, Andy, I want to sign you. So another bit of a lightning strike moment for me where I, I didn't really have to slog it through the clubs for a long time. And yeah. so that record, which, which was self-titled, um, I, I, I always wanted to call that band Soho, uh, Soho 69, which was basically a nod to Phil Lynott's um, solo in Soho and uh-huh. um, 69 or 67 in and around then were 67, 68, 69 were some of the biggest years for me and influences of some of the greatest bands, whether it be Zeppelin or the who, or, all of those bands that I told you that I grew up on. So the record company said, no way, we're not calling the band. So it's 69, it's going to be Andy Kern. And so I went out and toured the crap out of that record and, and um, did unfortunately did not get a U.S. record deal, but had two or uh, three top 10 tracks in Canada and ended up getting nominated for two Junos, which is our equivalent of Grammys and ended up winning one Juno award. And, toured for another 18 months off that, including opening up for Rush, um, which Coney Hatch never did. So yeah. we did a boatload of touring um, with Rick Emmett from Triumph and had a lot of success in Canada. So that was, a, that was a nice little shot in the arm for me after being told that, you know, I shouldn't be a vocalist and ended up uh, having that success with my first solo record. So I was, I was pretty stoked to have that behind me, you know? I bet. I bet. Didn't you win the award for like vocalist or something like that? It was kind of ironic. Yeah. I won most promising male <laughs> vocalist and, and you could say, wait a second, Andy's been doing it for a good six or seven years now. What do you mean? He's most promising. Right. But, um, that was, uh, they didn't call it best new artist at that time for the Junos. They didn't have that uh, category. So it was, it was most promising male vocalist that I won that year. And, um, just to put a time capsule on it, the, um, the, uh, the female, uh, vocalist that won it that year was Alanis. Oh, really? So that, okay. that was, yeah. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you, so you went out under your own name. I mean, was that a little nerve wracking? coming out of a band and now all of a sudden it's you it was i and i honestly didn't enjoy it i i never i i'm I'm, i I grew up in a big family and my parents raised me to be you know a humble guy and and i never wanted to be like look at me it's my solo trip look at me but um you know it 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 was something the record company demanded they said look at this is part of the deal so i wasn't about to turn it down but they're there was a lot of pressure on that at that point, you know, Joe, cause I, I had, 
I had to do all of the interviews. I had to um, really be on every night. And, and uh, instead of, you know, having two lead vocalists, I was the lead guy all night. So I really had to um, take care of my voice and a lot less partying and a lot less uh, extracurricular activities. Cause it was like, okay, if I, if I crap the band on this one, then the band, the whole band does. And, and yeah. um, I'm not just a bass player, you know? So there was a lot of pressure on that. And, um, like I enjoyed the success, but I the first the first move that I had after that was to not call the band Andy Kern after that and to call it something to to get back into the band camp of things, you know. Right. So after you did that album, did you do the Soho '69? Did you change the name? I did. I okay. did, and okay. we released one record on a small independent Canadian label called Hypnotic, and. Um, uh, there's, you know, I, I have to look back on my career and it's been a long one. And I can tell you that for as many highs, um, you know, when I tell you about the, like touring with Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and getting record deals with Mercury Polygram for the world and stuff like that, there's some equal lows on there. So I finished that record, the Soho 69 record called Scatterbrain. Um, we instantly got some video play out of much music in Canada and then the record label basically said, um, yeah, we've got no money to support you at this point. We're not doing any marketing. We're not doing any uh, tour support and everything. And we had been offered some dates with King's X. And so um, they were one of my favorite bands. I didn't mention Doug Pinnock. It's oh, one of my yeah. favorite bass players Excellent. and vocalists. And ab- yeah, absolutely love that band. So um, I accepted the Toronto show and we opened up for King's X. And that was the one and only show Soho 69 did. And I, I broke the band, I broke the band up after that. I just said to the label, um, you have my phone number when you're ready to put your money where your mouth is and when you're ready to support the record and live up to all of the obligations that you said that were in my contract, then I'll put the band back together. So, um, so unfortunately for Soho 69, that was a, the honeymoon was over pretty quickly. And, um, that's where I, I, uh, immediately signed a publishing deal with Sony music after that. And, um, and they asked me if I wanted to be like a songwriter guy that they could send around and write for other bands or if I wanted to write a new record. And I said, no, I'd, I'd like to write another record. So I did do a lot of co-writing at that time, mostly with Canadian artists, uh, Kim Mitchell from Max Webster. I ended up doing some co-writing with him and um, a band called Big Sugar here in Canada that did really well. I co-wrote one of their, their biggest songs with them, a song called Dig in a Hole. So all of that money that I earned from some of those uh, royalties that came in went to pay for uh, all of the recordings for the band Caramel that I formed. And um, Caramel eventually ended up getting signed to Geffen Worldwide. So it was a nice, uh, a nice little lightning strikes moment for me. And that, that was arguably the biggest um, record deal that I'd signed in my life with Geffen. And that, was, that music was a little different than what you were doing, right? Absolutely, it was. And, and um, for anybody that knows Cody Hatch, I kind of call that, you know, four in the floor cock rock. And, and, and the more bands that I put after that, so I, I think my solo record certainly stayed in that vein of yeah, the four in the floor mm-hmm. meat potatoes. But um, Soho, Soho 69 started to get, I was starting to get very influenced by. Um, bands like Stone Temple Pilots and King's X. And I was listening to Pearl Jam and Temple of the Dog and 
um, listening to Mike Patton and Faith No More. And I really started, you know, I think maybe even might have been some early days of me listening to Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails when nobody even knew who they were. So the sound started getting quite a bit more alternative. And because that was, that's where my head was at. And um, the producers, uh, the producers of that Caramel record were, were pushing me to scratch that itch. And um, let's, let's call a spade a spade. When, when Kurt Cobain came out with uh, Nirvana and Nevermind, um, it was not a good place to be in, in, a, in any kind of hair metal band. I think it yeah. instantly right, been, right. might have been the death of that. So I not only, you know, remember I told you, like, you know, change when in Rome, do as the Romans do. <laughs> right, so right. Um, the, the eye makeup and the, and the big hair got put aside for a more alternative sound and look, let's just say yeah yeah and then you ended up um touring with some of the the newer bands too at that time right like creed and uh stabbing westward Westward, um yeah and a conaline crush another really cool um, canadian band and so um you know and we had some really good success um early days uh you know um, caramel got a lot of radio play I'm, i'm honestly like if i recall we were top 10 in a bunch of markets in the U S and, um, ironically, unlike my other bands, we had, we had zero success in Canada with caramel, no radio play, no, nothing. It was nothing. all in the U S. So, yeah. So we spent a lot of time, um, playing some dates down there. And, and unfortunately for us, the, um, again, with the highs and the lows, uh, we were sort of riding the storm, just getting ready to release our second single, and uh, the A&R guy who had signed us and Geffen called me and said that the label was being gobbled up by, I believe it was Universal. Hmm. And a lot of them were going to, going to lose their jobs and they were going to drop a lot of the acts. And so um, once again, unfortunately, the honeymoon was over pretty quick. But I think confidence wise for me to go, oh, my God, you know, I've been at it for a very, very long time here and um, just arguably got one of the biggest record deals of my life. So I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything you were doing was pretty successful, though, I would say. You know what I mean? Um, well, he, <laughs> I guess, you know, Ray Daniels, who is Rush's manager, um, in terms of success, he said to me, Andy, I don't know any other musician, honestly, that's had as many record deals or chances or has had as many lawyers represent him as you have. And he said, you're a bit like a rock and roll cockroach. <laughs> and I said, you're right. You know, he's because I, I, just when you think I'm down and out and, and somebody steps on me, I crawl back from underneath the floorboards and come out with a new band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and that's you, kind of what I did, yo. I, I just I never let it bother me, and I think that's awesome. You know, if somebody said if somebody said to to me today, what attribute do you need to have to be a successful mus- a musician? Um, definitely persistence is is probably the number one thing. You, yeah. you can't give up, and and I think some of the best musicians I know probably gave up and just said, yeah, no, this is too hard. So I just I just just went, kept going back to the drawing board. And, and I think you're right though. I, I, I had some great success and I got, and I feel very lucky and gifted to, to have had so many opportunities, you know? Right. And then you had, and then after that you had leisure world. 
Yes. Okay. So the leisure, <laughs> yeah, like follow the bouncing ball, right? Yeah, so the I'm trying leisure to keep it all straight here. So here's here's the leisure world story. So um, I had two really great guys out of Buffalo, New York, that I was working with. They had a great company called Could Be Wild, and they did independent radio promotions. Uh, Doug Dombrowski and Bruce Moser, and um, we got together, and they said, Andy, yeah, like we've tasted blood. We've tasted blood on this man. This is this is proof that you you know you we think you have what it takes to to have a successful career. Um, we think you should go and write another record. So that one, you know, we got quite a sizable signing advance for that one. So I self-funded the Leisure World Record, and it was the one and only time in my life, other than when I was working with Kim Mitchell and we did those Tony Hatch demos. It was the one and only time that I finished an entire record with no label help, nobody but myself and my bandmates going in there, charting our path, deciding which songs were going to be on the record, what the artwork was going to be. And, and um, my managers were really supportive. And so I funded that Leisure World record. And because those two guys were really plugged in in the U.S., they said, you know what? why don't we release this independently on our tiny little record label? We've got a little record label called 41 records. And why don't we throw it at the wall and see if it sticks? And there you go. Another lightning strike. We ended up releasing this song called I'm dead. It went top 10 in Boston with WAAF, um, Madison, Wisconsin, a bunch of, a bunch of um, cities in, in California picked it up. And before you know it, we had, a second bidding war because we had a bidding war on Carmel, uh, the caramel records. So we ended up signing with a, with a company called artist direct and artist direct was started by Ted Fields and Ted Fields was one of the founders of Interscope records. So we thought, okay, this guy's, you know, daddy Warbucks, he's got to have a lot of bucks and this is going to be great. Let's, uh, let's roll the dice. So we signed with artist direct and, we started doing some shows and we ended up getting an offer from Godsmack to come out and tour with them for their entire tour. Wow, and nice. um, so our managers and, and we were riding a pretty good wave at that time with airplay with I'm dead. And it was just, we just kept getting more and more stations adding it. So again, um, the lightning strikes, but then you go into another Valley. So the record company said, well, um, yeah, we don't think, uh, we can support this. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, we're winding down the label and we don't have any tourist support for you. So oh, here geez. we were with a top 10 song in the U S with basically a label that said, we can't support you. And there was no way I had a m- enough money to, to support, you know, a full band and road crew to open up for the Godsmack uh, tour. So we ended up, um, having to pass on that. And, and that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me in terms of being a full-time musician playing out there, because um, that was the the moment where I sort of changed careers and went to the other side of the desk, Joe. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you how, how you made that transition, but that explains it right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is, and I dropped Ray Daniels name for, uh, you know, for a lot of this interview telling you that, you know, not only was he, the guy that founded Anthem Records, he's the manager for Rush and had been all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But we we stayed friends. He was my manager. He signed us to Adam Coney Hatch. So um, so part of that Artist Direct um, Leisure World chapter was they said, look, 
we feel really bad about this that we that we're that we've done this to you guys. So we're going to give you your record back. You can have the masters back. So I immediately went to Ray and I said, look, we're we're on you know I forget what it was, 200 radio stations in the U.S. Do you think you can help me? Can you bring this to your friend Balazoli over at, at Atlantic Records? Tell him he can have the record. We don't want any advance free. It's his. I will sign the paperwork. All we want is tour support to go out with um, with Godsmack and maybe some kind of guarantee that if the record sells well, we'll do it. We will get a shot at doing another record. So he said, no problem, Andy, I'll give him a shout for you. So he called uh, Val and then he called me the next day and he said, I have good news and bad news for you. I said, all right, hit me with the bad news. He said, uh, Val is only his past. They're not going to take the record. I don't know why, Andy, because it's a no-brainer. You guys are riding a super high at, at uh, U.S. radio right now. So, unfortunately, he's not going to he's not going to take the record. And I said, okay, well, what's the good news? And right. If that's the bad news, what the hell is the good news? <laughs> he said, I I want you to come over and work with me at Anthem Records. I want you to be the A and R guy for Anthem Records. I think you got great ears. I've, you've been producing all your records. Um, you know, you have two young daughters. It's probably time for you to get off the road and maybe just, you know, concentrate on staying at home a little bit. And, and I need some help at the label and um, I can maybe groom you as, to be a manager. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a second. I never wanted to be a manager. I don't want to babysit like grown, uh, grown adults. And he said, yeah. no, honestly, I'm, I'm really going to help you out here. And I'm going to groom you to be, uh, you know, a label manager guy. So um, I have to tell you a funny story that his promises, like you should get off the road and spend more time with your family. I never spent so much time on the road <laughs> after I joined Ray Daniels and that, Anthem yeah. Records and was out on the road with um, with the guys in Rush and, and Big Wreck and the Tea Party and Stephen Page. We managed from the Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, so I had a great, uh, honestly, I had a great sort of 15-year run as um, as, a, as a label executive and a manager, and, but I, I handled a lot of stuff for them with their Guitar Hero and Rock Band and a lot of times with all of their DVD releases, I was pretty involved in those, um, you know, making sure that I was the quality control guy and um, I took care of all of their endorsements for them and, and still do to this day for Getty and Alex with Gibson and Fender and DW Drums. So it was a really great learning curve for me but one of the prerequisites that ray said um he said to me andy before you leave my office he said remember that rock and roll cockroach story that we talked about about you just forming another band and getting another record deal he said you got to promise me you're not going to do that because most of these artists are probably not going to like the idea of being represented by a guy who's got his own career going on so can we agree that you're going to put the bass guitar down and and focus on this and, and, you know, be the, be the label manager, um, artist representative. So I did. So I, I never stopped composing and or writing. I did a lot of music for film and television here in Canada. I wrote for, um, our TSN, which is like your version of ESPN, but, mm-hmm. um, I didn't play in, I didn't play any live shows for 12 to 15 years. Um, uh, because I had promised that to Ray Daniels. Was that a hard decision or was it a no-brainer and you're just like, yep? Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you, there were many nights where I was standing side stage watching whether it would be Rush. I saw, you know, and I love those guys that this is meant as no disrespect, but um, whether it was being in Australia with the Tea Party, you had a huge, huge career over there and standing side stage or watching Big Wreck 
played countless sold out shows in Canada. And I was like, geez, man, what am I doing here? Yeah. I'm standing side, I'm standing side stage. And a lot of times my wife would say to me, Andy, do you miss it? And I was like, yeah, I really do. I really do. But, um, I, I, I made that promise and I'm a man of my word. And, and I, and honestly, like I, I embraced the role and I think, um, for anybody who's on the record side of the uh, uh, label side of things, I mean, I, I, consider myself lucky I, I got invited to go to the rock and roll hall of fame induction um all the way to, to you know when i stopped doing it with uh, on the label side i thought well what else is left to do man i just went to i just got invited by rush to hang with them at the rock and roll hall of fame what an honor right yeah. so it was an it was an amazing ride and um candidly i'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a gun for hire now I, I consult and i just did a a really cool box set with um with triumph for the 40th anniversary of allied forces so i'm not completely removed from it but i think i've found the nice balance now where i'm still playing and composing and doing shows every now and then like you know six or seven shows a year with coney hatch but still keeping one foot in the business side from what i've learned and um, and still do some production and still write music for some film and television. There's some pretty exciting stuff coming up with myself and Alex Lifeson um, that I never, ever thought would happen to be collaborating on, on musical projects with him. But um, it's been a really, really crazy ride, to be honest with you, man. I, I never, I, there's many days I just pinch myself and go, oh, like, you know, I, I got some guardian angels upstairs, I think. Yeah, I mean, you, you sounds like you've done it all. I mean, you've seen both sides of the business, and now, like you said, you're working with Alex. Uh, what that project is? It it's an envy of one, right? In uh, envy of none, none, and, none, um, none. Okay. Yeah, envy of none, and um, and that one came. I, I'll tell you the story. Uh, I'll consolidate it, but you know, so obviously when you work closely with artists, um, whether it be on the label side or uh, even on the management side, you, you certainly form friendships and you become, you know, you, with that much FaceTime and, and being on the road, I was already friends with the guys in Rush, but um, with Alex um, specifically, we spent a lot of time and Getty, he, he and I spoke a lot about um, our favorite bass players and, and our, our love of funk and R and B, but, but Alex and I really hit it off and we spoke a lot about um, music for film and, and talking about people like Danny, Danny Elfman or Mark, Mark Mothersborough, who does a lot of the music for Tim Burton. And um, the two of us really liked electronica and ambient music and, um, you know, we started talking about different, different artists that we like, and, and we discovered very quickly that we were listening to the same type of what I'll call non rock music, like massive attack or, um, thievery corporation or things like that. So, um, he said to me, I want to play some music that I've been writing. It's not for rush. It's just instrumental stuff. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe you can help me introduced me to some people in film and television. I, I, I really, I like the idea of, of writing for film and television because it's so liberating. It's not like writing a, a chorus and, a, and an intro and a verse. It's, you right. know, you're writing the picture and there's no real format to it. So not only did I say, yes, I'll help you because I, I knew a lot of people. At one point he said to me, I'm working on something and I put some guide bass down. I don't really like it. Would you be up for playing bass on a couple tracks for me. And I, and I just remember thinking, Oh my God, I was 16 years old watching Rush play at Maple Leaf Gardens and Matthew right. Hall. And, and 
Alex Lifeson is asking me to play bass. What the hell is going on? <laughs> like, what what life am I living here? Right. right. And um, I jo- I jokingly said to him, I go, Alex, um, don't don't you know any other bass players? Isn't I like I think you got a guy on speed dial whose initials are GL. <laughs> like, shouldn't you be calling him? Right. <laughs> and he said, No, no. And he said, Andy, honestly, I'm I'm going to send it across to you because we have both have home studios and and. So that's where the loving started. Um, I laid down some bass on a couple tracks, and those two songs that I played bass on are the ones that are actually on Alex Lifeson's uh, website right now uh, called Spy House and Kabul Blues. And they were part of the um, backdrop of the video that he did for the launch of his Epiphone guitar. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud that he asked me to do that. But that kind of led into the Andy, what are you doing conversation? What, tell me what you're up to these days. Right. And I said, yeah. I've met this, I met this really, really talented female vocalist. Her name is Maya Wynn. She's from Portland, Oregon. Um, and I met her through some friends and we talked, we started talking about collaborating and I sent her some ideas and I said, I absolutely love her voice. Like, I think this girl's going to be a big, she's going to have a, a, a long career and, and be a, a real big star someday. And he said, man, can I hear that? Can you send it to me? So I did. And he called me a couple of days later and said, wow, this stuff's really awesome, man. Who played guitar in it? And I said, I did, and I, I would love you to replace it. And he said, well, I'm not going to replace it because I think you did some cool stuff, but I'm going to play some some stuff on it and let's add to it. And the one song turned into two, turned into three or four. And it got to the point where we had about, I think, six or seven songs done. And we were up having a bite to eat at lunch. And he said, Andy, what are we going to do with these tracks? Like, we were honestly just sending them back and forth between us and myself and sending stuff out to Maya to sing on. And I've got a friend in town named Al Fanabellini is an awesome engineer and programmer and guitarist. And he was putting stuff on and he said, you know, this stuff sounds really like atmospheric and almost soundtrackish. He said, what do you think about sending it to some of your friends who are film supervisors? And, and um, I said, I'm going to do that. So I sent a couple songs out and within about a week, I got a call back from a really nice film supervisor out in British Columbia in, in Vancouver. She said, I'm working on a Netflix series right now called Tiny Pretty Things. And I love this song called Liar. Can, can we have it? I want it. I want it. And it's not a lot of money, but um, it will be perfect. So that was, that was the thing that spurred us on to go, oh, my God, I guess we aren't drinking the Kool-Aid here. Other people actually like the music beyond the four people that are in this band, right? Oh, yeah. And it's a side project for all of us, Alex included. So that um, incentivized us to, to record a bunch more material. And, and fast forward to today, we've got probably 10 songs recorded with another two or three in the can. And we're speaking to about three or four labels now because Alex sort of let the cat out of the bag. And I did too, that we were working together. And obviously that stirred quite a frenzy with the rush fans going, sure. Oh my God, one of the guys in the band is busy, you know, and yeah. this is great. And, and so, and I think with Kabul blues and spy house being on Alex's uh, website, I think the outpouring of love that I've seen from the hardcore rush fans that are just so pleased that Alex is writing after after losing Neil mm-hmm. and the band stopped playing and just going through that incredibly tough chapter. And I know this will sound kind of cheesy and hokey, but honestly, if nothing happens with these songs other than it got Alex Lifeson writing again and in a happy place, then then that's good enough for me. But I do think these songs are going to see the light of day. We're talking to a couple of labels that are, are 
are very interested in releasing the material. And for anybody who's who's listening to your to your show, um, you know, this isn't it, it's not Russian, it's not Coney Hatch. It's very trippy, dark, ambient, at times poppy. You know, there's electronic, like there's some nine inch nails vibes. There's some definitely some trippy ambient massive attack, but there's definitely some pop and rock stuff. And there's, and, and his guitar playing is unmistakable when he plays guitar on it. You'd be like, yes, there he is. There's Alex Lyson. That sounds awesome. And you said we could hear two of these songs on his website. Yeah. If you go to alexlyson.com and then you hit the music tab, um, there's, there's a, uh, two different projects up there. Obviously Victor is up there, which everybody knows about was one of his other side projects. But if you just click on the shot of Alex with uh, holding a guitar, it'll take up the two, it'll, it'll open up the two, uh, tracks and, and you can listen to them there at the moment. They're instrumental, but both of those tracks for the envy of none project will have vocals on them. Okay. Okay. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm going to definitely yeah, check that I, out. I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's pretty trippy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Now, with that going on too, recently you did uh, released a live Coney Hatch record too, right? Not too long ago. <laughs> yeah, as if, as if I wasn't doing enough, right? <laughs> um, I'll tell you what happened. We got a really nice invitation from the guy who um, renovated the legendary El Combo in Toronto. And uh, for those of you who don't know the El Combo, it, it it's it's kind of like the CBGBs of of uh, Toronto or Canada or maybe like the Roxy or the Cavern Club like it's that iconic. Um, the Rolling Stones have played there. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Blondie, uh, Cheap Trick. My God, the list goes on and on. Jaco Pastore's played there. Like it, it just do do yourself a favor. Go to elmacombo.com and check out that venue. Yeah. But check out the 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 legacy of it because um. The, the acts that that went through there were the cream of the crop. And this was, oh, you, I forgot a big one. You too played their very first Canadian show at the Elm Combo. Wow. Um, yeah, that's on a, big a cold one. night in, in February to about 20 people. But anyway, so Coney Hatch played there in the, in uh, 1983. And uh, the, um, a, a gentleman by the name of Michael Weckerly, who has ended up becoming a friend of mine, is responsible for renovating the club and, and is a big fan of Coney Hatch and said, you guys got to come back here. Um, I was, I was at the show in 83. Would you consider coming back? And I said, yes, we would. But, uh, and, and we, and he said, I want to do a live stream show with you. And we work with nugs.net. So we did a live stream show that night, but part of the handshake deal was that we would be able to walk away with the audio and we wanted to release a live record because with Coney Hatch being around almost 40 years now, we, we thought that it would be a really cool thing to do a live record because it, everybody that had, knows our band said, you know, you guys are such a great live band. Um, how come you've never released a live record? Well, so that's what we did with um, the live at the Elma Combo. We, we pressed 300 vinyl copies and I think 200 CDs and sold them off our website. And um, I think they're all pretty much gone now. So nice. that was kind of fun to do that. Did you, is it um, by chance you're going to have a, a a DVD or anything of the show? Well, it's it, it's funny that you mentioned that because, um, and I don't, the lightning hasn't officially struck <laughs> us in the head yet, but um, a label a label in Europe and a label in the States heard about the live Coney Hatch record. And they came to us and they said, we're well aware that you uh, did a live stream show. Is there a possibility we could talk about a deal 
where we would re-release that um, on a DVD and actually, you know, do a commercial release of it. Cause we kind of considered it a little bootleg, the one that we did with uh-huh. 300 copies. It was, it, I mean, it's gone. Right. So I think there's a pretty good chance that that actually might happen, that nice. there might be a DVD of this and, and which would be cool because we've never done one of those either. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And that you did this in, during the pandemic, right? We did. There was a brief period um, where our government, um, Joe, they said to us that uh, that they were going to let venues open back up at a ha- at, at um, like a quarter capacity. So that night that we played at the Elma Combo, it's a 500 seat venue, and we played to 50 people that night. But you couldn't tell they were quite a, a ruckus bunch in there. But um, so we ended up playing that during the pandemic, and and. Um, I, the, you know, a lot of people said to me, like, were, were, you, were you guys rusty? Like, how, how did you rehearse? And yeah. we had played so many shows as Coney Hatch. We did two four-hour rehearsals, and it was like putting on an old pair of tennis sneakers. Yeah, and it's just there. We, we just, we went at it. But, and and uh, uh, I think the record turned out really, really cool. We It was mixed by a, um, a gentleman by the name of Vic Florenzi, and Vic has won a bunch of Juno Awards as the Engineer of the Year. So we had a real, uh, a, a great team behind us. And um, and it's real rough, raw, two guitars, bass, drums, vocals, in your face, rock and roll, like four on the floor. Um, so we're pretty proud, proud of how it turned out. Nice. Nice. Was it only available on CD and, uh, in, in that limited run in vinyl or is it on digital also? Yeah. No, we haven't done we haven't done a digital deal for it yet, which is part of the conversations that are going on right now with two two separate labels. Okay. Um, so, uh, so hopefully that'll that'll be out. But um, you know, speaking of of the digital stuff, um, the the Leisure World and the Caramel record were never available digitally. So over the pandemic, I I got off my ass and I went in and found a lot of those master tapes and got them mastered for digital and finally got those available. So if you're trolling around on Amazon or Spotify and you want to listen to I'm Dead or or Lucy from Caramel, those are finally up there because I, I had lots of emails from people going, how come I can't find these records anywhere? So it was a nice little bit of closure for me to get those up on, on, on digitally for people to hear. Yeah. Are those albums available on vinyl or anything? I know vinyl's making a, well, it's already came back, I guess. Yeah. Over, you know, sells more than CDs. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They, they aren't at the moment, but I, but I am working on that and, and probably that you'll end up seeing them available on, on my website, which is um, Andy, Andy Kern music.com. Cool. Cool. Well, listen, Andy, you've had a great career and you still are rocking it. So, I mean, kudos to you, man. It's not easy. It's not an easy business. Well, first of first of all, thank you for for um, having me on the coffee break show and, and uh, the coffee uh, chat has been yeah, a, a yeah. nice one. And um, I feel really lucky, man. And thank you for saying that. You know, it's it's been a, a crazy roller coaster ride, but it's it's what I do. It's part of my DNA, and it's like. Um, you know, if you take the bass guitar and, and a hockey stick away from me, you're going to have a pretty unhappy guy. So I, yeah. it, it's part of it is part of it is selfish. I, I need those things to, to make make feel like I'm I'm <laughs> I'm in the right place, you know, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, brother. Yeah, man. Thank you. And uh, you're not playing full contact hockey, are you? 
No, no, okay. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> it's um, it's kind of like what they call it is recreational uh, beer beer league. So it's more about having cold beers afterwards, and they're all friends about mine. I don't really organize it; just sort of pick pick up. But uh, um, that hasn't stopped me from getting injured. I'll tell you that. Oh, My geez. wife keeps shaking her head when I when I come home with a fat lip or, or pull, pull my groin or something like that, you know, she's like, come on, Andy, when are, when are you going to stop? And I'm like, never when I can't skate anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, be careful out there. <laughs> All I right. will. All I right, will man. for sure. Well, listen, you take care and thanks again. And, uh, you know, I, again, I apologize for the rescheduling and you know, that kind of stuff, but, uh, I'm glad we got to finally no, have there- a conversation. Yeah, no apology necessary, Joe. And thank you again for having me on. And and you take care of yourself, man. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Cheers. Take care. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms.